Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. It was funny because I told him, I was like, hey, I'd never seen a New York rat. So we went down sprinting. I want to go see a New York rat. And he got mad at me. He's like, no, it's not a rat. It's a raccoon. I'm like, hell no, man. It's a damn rat. It's a New York rat, man. I was just crazy because we were going back and forth debating if it was a rat or a raccoon. <laughs> crazy, man. Insane. Um, yeah, like you said, uh, you know, nice debate about, uh, you know, a uh, rat or a raccoon. Um uh, yeah, but to be honest, uh, I thought it was actually a possum. So, uh, you know, not not a not a raccoon, a, a possum. What's the relationship like with you and and Lindor right now? Oh, it's been fantastic. Um, you know, we're we're great. Uh, we work well together up the middle, um, and uh, you know, just very positive all the time. And you know, he's just you know fantastic to be around. So, uh, you know, enjoy uh, you know playing up the middle with him, and uh, you know, look forward to you know keep doing it all year. You know, I think there's a lot of skepticism over the fact that Francisco comes in here and says this whole thing was over a rat and a raccoon. Are you willing to say that this whole thing was over a rat and a raccoon, or was there? I something? don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm not. I don't. I don't know what it was about. Like I said, when, when, uh, when I got down there to the tunnel, and then the only thing I, I can recall is Francisco telling me that we're playing baseball and we're gonna win this game. Uh, but that's that's all I know from what happened down there. Like I, I. I have no idea, like, of, of the story of the rat or raccoon or anything like that. Um, but, like I, like I said, my focus, once again, was the game. The whole time, everything that was going on, everything that we had to think to include the pieces to win this game, we almost used the entire team tonight. Well, you know, clearly um, it, it's something that they didn't uh, want to get into too much detail about. So, you know, I respect that and uh, know kind of the – the code of the clubhouse. The one thing I'll just say just generally is not specific to the situation, but just broadly, you know, these guys are competitive. They want to win. They are like a family. They spend so much time together and just like a family, sometimes there's disputes and debates and arguments. And, you know, but at the end of the day, um, you know, you go out there and grind out a great win and uh, you walk away still, still brother, still family. So that's all I'll say to that. Louis, did you sit down and talk to, to Jeff and Francisco about what happened last night? And also, 
Zach Scott just said the way they handled it isn't how he would have handled it and how a lot of people in the organization would have re recommended handling. Are you disappointed with that they didn't just kind of explain or at least say, look, we had a disagreement and we should move on? Well, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm always going to respect what the guys choose uh, to say. I'm going to say I'm going to say that. But, you know, I, I, I do want to share that I talk to both of them. And I talk to more guys. I talk to all the guys every day, and I try to connect with the players as much as I can. I always say that communication is the number one thing. So, uh, but you know, there's I just you always create opportunities when you know when things are said or uh, and and you can have conversations about it. I think yesterday, uh, you know, just from talking to each player, uh, I'm going to say this like, and I'm going to use the family concept again because. We, we do get along here as a family. I mean, we're, you know, we're brothers. Uh, everything that happens uh, in a family on a daily basis happens here. There's agreements. There's disagreements. Uh, and uh, at the end of the day, they, they both make us better. I mean, we're a better ball, ball club uh, tonight because, you know, whatever happened last night. <laughs> It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on Sunday, May the 9th, 2021. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Well, happy Mother's Day to those in the audience. Hope you had a great day. Uh, of course, another a week of Mets baseball in the books, and what a wild and wacky week. I mean, is there anything more you can say uh, about that? But um, I told everybody back when we did the, the show just a few days ago after the Chili Davis firing that the real thing that you want to worry about, the real story that nobody's talking about, well, kind of brushed under the rug when the news came back that Jacob deGrom had tendonitis or inflammation uh, in his side or his lat, his back. There's a lot of speculation about what part of the body is actually bothering Jacob deGrom. Ironically enough, it's a soft tissue situation, it appears like. And there was actually an article at The Athletic about how soft tissue injuries are up this year. So something to keep an eye on. But as I said, there are thunderbolts, and then there are thunderbolts. The Mets have had a number of thunderbolts. This last week has been a wild and wacky week. It's been a wild season when you think about all the things that have happened, even going back to you know the whole Trevor Bauer wackiness uh, back in February when they thought they signed them and they didn't sign them and, and all that stuff. So, um, you know, while everybody else is worried about rat versus raccoon and the players getting along and creating a manufactured media debate, about Lindor and, and McNeil getting into a disagreement for about five minutes, if, if that, in the dugout. The real news and the real concern is Jacob deGrom, and we really can't talk much about it other than any time you hear lat or you hear that kind of injury, it's definitely something that's not, hey, Mrs. Start. You know, if that thing tears, you're out for the year. You saw what happened with Noah Syndergaard. And if there's a strain, I think Steven Matz actually went through this when he first came up in 2015, and he was out about two months. So, you know, you have a lot of best-case, worst-case scenarios going through your head. The only positive is that it sounded like Jake wanted to pitch through it. Now, with a competitor like Jacob deGrom and a guy that has a high tolerance for pain, that's not a surprise. It was the right move to take him out. I'm all for players pushing through injuries, but when it comes to that kind of injury— and which could potentially also force you to alter your delivery, hurt your shoulder, hurt your elbow. You don't want to mess around with, with that. The guy wasn't on today. And again, this is the beauty of Jacob deGrom at this point in his career. We talked about this earlier this year when he was starting on opening day. The guy clearly wasn't on. 
There was some hard hit contact more than normal against him, but he gave up one run and he pitched out of a, a bases loaded mess. Think about that. I mean, they scored one run. Now I know the Diamondbacks are are a mess and a total team slump the entire road trip. So perhaps it was the right team that could have been much different if it was a, a different environment, different ballpark, different team. But just tells you where Jacob Degrom is at. Now the real thing that I know everybody wants to hear from me about, and and what I really want to talk about, what I will tell you, what we will talk about is I'll get to the rat versus raccoon nonsense. Uh, but what I really want to do here is, I, and I had said as recently as last week that I don't want to really give a, a look at this team and an assessment until Memorial Day because I want to let things work out. But I really think after the last few days, especially after the Chili Davis firing and the fact that they were going into the second game of the doubleheader against the Cardinals, and the Cardinals were very impressive to me. They were they were plucky. They're a good team. They got some good arms in that bullpen. Offensively, they make things happen. That was a tough series. The fact that they were able to split that series after losing the first two, a couple of bad losses, especially the first game of the doubleheader, and then come home and sweep the Diamondbacks. Now you got the Orioles coming in. You got Matt Harvey pitching uh, for a business person special on Wednesday at noon. John Means, who's just coming off a no-hitter, is pitching. So it's not a gimme series, but at the very least, you would expect the Mets to come out of this homestand winning four or five. They're 16 and 13. I don't even want to look at the standings right now. I just want to look at this team with everything that's happened. I wanted to say, I really want a theme is, is the glass half full or is the glass half empty? And right now, I have a good case of telling you why the glass is half full, and I'll tell you that in a little bit. But, of course, it wouldn't be the Mets if it wasn't there wasn't some kind of controversy. So, he, here's what I'll say about the rat versus raccoon. We know it's a lie. We know that, that the minute Lindor said that it was a lie, and I cringed a little bit uh, because I was like, oh, here we go. This is Bobby Bonilla Part 2. You're not going to knock the smile off my face, and here's the first uh, stain on the reputation. And instead of just taking accountability, we're making up this, this story. But the more that I saw... Lindor talk, how he handled it. Then McNeil came out and kind of perpetuated the story. They I mean, they even got poor Patrick Mazeka. 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 Probably said his name wrong. I mean, if he's around long enough, I'll learn it, right? Uh, they, got, they asked the, the poor kid. He just had a little dribbler walk-off hit. They're asking him about the stupid thing when he had nothing to do with it. I mean, welcome to the big leagues. Welcome to New York. And welcome to the match, Patrick Mazeka. But... Um, I, I said it, it didn't bother me as much after I saw how they were really just making a joke of it. They realized that they blew up at each other. They realized that there was more important things. They realized they need each other to win. And, you know, they're like, hey, let's just make some fun of it. Let's laugh at ourselves. And the media was, they were going crazy. How can you lie to us? You know, they were trying to find the smoking gun. It was like they were putting these two, two guys on trial, and neither one were going to have it. I mean, look what you have here between the two of them. McNeil is an intense guy. I never get the impression he likes talking to anybody. Not that he's uh, uh, rude. I just I think he's focused, and he's a guy that's focused on the game, and I don't get a sense that he's all that comfortable in front of the camera. And then you have Lindor, who's a, a, an affable guy, a guy that played in Cleveland, a guy that came here with a lot of fanfare. And let's face it, it's a guy that probably didn't have a hell of a lot of criticism like he's going to experience here in New York in Cleveland. And now he's the highest paid player on the team, and he's been struggling. And he got a big hit on, on, on Friday. McNeil played well this weekend. Nobody talked about his big hit uh, during the whole post game because of the whole, we don't even know what the fight was about. We don't know if there was a fight. Maybe it was just a screaming match. Sometimes people scream at each other, and, and it sounds worse than if they were throwing fists. You know, I had one beat reporter say, oh, it looked like McNeil had a, a red eye and a black eye. Well, come on. Players don't have to love each other. And we don't know if McNeil and Lindor don't like each other. We have no idea. Team chemistry is about everybody coming to the ballpark, focused on their role, taking their craft seriously, putting the time and work in. You may not like their politics. You may find them annoying. I mean, there are plenty of players in the clubhouse, like anybody else who has to be around 25 other guys, 24, well, 25 other guys, because the rosters are 26 now. <laughs> You you cannot ha put a roster together where everybody gets along and nobody annoys somebody else. I mean, is there an office that you guys work in where you're not annoyed at somebody? doesn't mean you don't like them. It's just like, uh, you'll work with them. You'll, you'll collaborate with them. 
but you're not going to hang out with them. They're just not your type of person for whatever reason. Nothing personal. And, and that's what happens in a ball club. And that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Chemistry is not all about them singing kumbaya. They're about focused on a goal and putting the work in. And it doesn't matter. You know, it makes for some good storylines when you have Reggie Jackson and Billy Martin, Greg Nettles hating each other and whatever it may be. And, and certainly during times in the 80s, you had Wally Backman and Daryl Strawberry going at it, Lee Mazzilli. I mean, Keith Hernandez and Daryl. There was always something going on. But at the end... As long as you guys are all focused on your job and, and being the best version of whatever your talent can bring to the table for the club, all that other stuff doesn't matter. Now, I wouldn't have probably done the rat versus raccoon joke. I wouldn't have done that. It's not my personality. It seems like it was probably Lindor's idea, and it's his personality, and McNeil went along. I will say I think that there, at least I saw some spark from this club. Uh, I still worry that there's a little bit of a sleepiness to them. They're starting to come around. They're talking a good game. I mean, Trevor May even said after uh, the Saturday night win how they're starting to come to the clubhouse expecting to win. That's a big deal. That's why this DeGrom news is so big because this is the ultimate thunderbolt. You got Carrasco and, and, and Syndergaard right there. You could see them. You know, another you know three, four weeks, you're going to start to see these guys come back. Lugo's right there. You could feel him. You could touch him. This roster, this bullpen that has been so good, this rotation that has been so good, that has not been healthy completely 100%, is going to get top-notch reinforcements. And the idea that DeGrom could be out a couple of months, that's the real story, guys. The rat versus raccoon is yesterday's news. It's swept under the rug. It's it's gone. And, uh, you know, <laughs> you could try to put, if you're the media, any banana peel. I'm sure they're going to be mad at these two guys for the rest of the year. But look at how this was handled compared to other periods under Wilpon ownership, especially the last couple of years. The manager basically said, hey, I don't, I, and I'm out there managing a game. I didn't see anything there. He didn't deny it. He didn't acknowledge it. And then he basically said, hey, it is what it is. And he felt that this, they're going to grow from this. They're going to get closer because of this incident. The general manager came right away the next day. You know, I criticized Zach Scott, said he looked kind of like an HR you know, corporate stiff the other day when I was doing the Chili Davis thing. He's trying to grow into this position. But he, he said, I wouldn't have handled it this way, but it wasn't something important enough for me to get worried about. Not every little thing that the media gets crazy about do we have to make a national story. And it went away. You know, there was none of the manager perpetuating the lie. There was none of the GM, you know, trying to cover it up. That's what it would have made this worse. If you insulted the intelligence of the media... And try to make it sound like it was real when everybody knew it wasn't. And it was clear that Lindor and McNeil were joking about it. Similar to the whole Donnie Stevenson thing, which all of a sudden, that's why Chili Davis got fired. I mean, refer to the last show. This, I didn't mention Donnie Stevenson, the fictitious coach, once. Lindor and McNeil are critically important to this offense. They have to get on track. They're still not right. And if this little fisticuffs or shouting match or disagreement cause that for them to get closer and maybe put some fire and spit and vinegar into their into their soul into their game it's a good thing and just because Ken Davidoff is is offended and another whoever else on that beat is offended big deal but I'll tell you you could see with the advent of zoom it was much easier to squash this you know there wasn't reporters running around the clubhouse trying to find that unnamed person who might leak and say well this is what happened all you know is that something happened. You don't know what it is, and nobody's talking. This is, this is a team very bonded at the idea of keeping their nonsense or anything in-house. And that's important because they probably have seen from some predecessors of their teams that the minute you let the media rip you apart, it'll all become everything but the play on the field. And not that they're out in the, the, on the mound or at the plate thinking about it, but it just adds an extra level of stress and peripheral nonsense. We talk about those peripheral opponents that can undo a baseball season or adds extra work when it's already a hard task to win. So that's all I have for the Rat Raccoon. Much to do about nothing. And I think in a lot of ways it might become somewhat if they continue to win and they continue to get on a roll. Uh, I think I saw somebody tweet out over the weekend that maybe we'll see Gary Cohen say, since the Rat Versus raccoon controversy, the Mets are X. Um, kind of as a joke. But to me, 
the real outstanding news, not outstanding, the news that we don't know what's going to come of it is Jacob deGrom. And uh, it does, and, and as I take a break and when I come back, I want to talk a little bit about what I see out of this team because I think this is a glass half full scenario. As worried as I am about, there's a lot of things that worry me about the offense specifically, and I'm still not sold that this team is right. There still seems something's wrong. But I'm going to take a glass half full approach because of a lot of the things that I have seen and how even without them clicking on all cylinders, they're 16 and 13, which bodes well as things start to normalize and they get reinforcements. But I'm also basing this on the fact that Jacob DeGrom, outside of the fact that I think he might miss certainly this week's start, and I would guess he's going to be on the 15-day DL and probably get to sit for two weeks regardless. if The best case scenario is I think he goes on the DL and he misses 15 days, two or three starts. I think he misses the next two weeks. I think that's the best you could hope for coming out of any news that comes tomorrow, no matter how benign the MRI comes back. Worst case is that there's something bigger and you're looking at a couple of months or worse yet the whole year, and then that's a whole different situation. That's an emergency podcast that we don't even want to think about right now. So, all right, let's take a quick break. When I return, the Mets glasses have full. I'm a little worried about them. I'm still feeling a little ugh about certain things. But the glass is half full, and I'll tell you why, that and more, right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five, because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at mikesilva at talkingmetspodcast.com no g talkingmetspodcast.com hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show all right we're back so i'm gonna give you the mets glasses half full we're you know just starting may we're about 10 days nine days into may we got Memorial Day another three weeks ahead, which is the, the first look in the, under the hood situation. So why do I feel like, even though even these with these wins, I feel like the Mets are there are aspects of their game that are so glaringly not good, that are so the old red flags that you would say that that, that worry me so much that maybe it's me from. A little of that baseball PTSD from 2020 and 2019 and 2018 where the red flags that we kept saying will figure themselves out always seem to become big and bigger and undo the season, specifically in 2019. Maybe I have a little bit of that PTSD, but I have to admit that this team so far, there's been situations and instances where you were waiting for the other shoe to drop and they've surprised you and they've overcome with some adversity and... Uh, and really have, you know, worked through some tough times. You saw it, like, with Edwin Diaz today, coming in with a couple of runners on. You know, Barnes, they really try to push him, just like they tried to push Familia the night before. And he gets a ground ball double play, not his M.O. And then he pitches, even in the ninth, he, you know, the drop pop-up, that's the kind of thing you would expect, the rain, the drizzle. You know, Diaz is a guy, when things around him don't go right, you tend to see him flare up and, and things spiral. Uh, his mechanics got out of whack in the middle of his appearance, and he corrected them. They didn't just persist. So uh, sometimes you, with that dark cloud that you have is, is self-imposed when you really think about it from a fan's point of view. But the pitching to me, which arguably, you, if you look at the metrics, depending on which metric you look at, it, it could be considered the best in baseball, certainly the top two or three. And if you go back to the 2015-2016 Mets, who had a lot of issues offensively and a lot of uh, issues defensively, we're not perfect teams. But the reason that one team won a pennant and went to the World Series and the other team made it to the playoffs with a late run is because their pitching was so good. And they had the back end, at least the 8th and ninth inning, locked down. This team seems to have a little bit more depth to the bullpen. but And this is where the DeGrom situation is so important. Because him going down for a long period really upsets what I'm about to say. Upsets the apple cart in a huge way. You're getting what you would expect from DeGrom and Stroman. I think Stroman has been who you'd expect. You want to argue that he's a two or a three? We can argue that. But he's pitched top of the rotation. Even when he had, you know, they had one really bad outing 
but uh, maybe that's a correction where, you know, you know, going back to the mean, he was so good in some of the other outings. And even in the outing against Washington, it wasn't like he was way off. There was a lot of soft contact hits, balls finding the hole, things like that. DeGrom, we've, we just talked about him. We know how important he is and how great he is. And, and the point in his career where a bad outing is five innings, one run. I mean, that's crazy when you think about it. Taiwan Walker, who is, has been a promising prospect, really teased what he can be a couple of times this year against Miami in the day game and then this week against St. Louis where he pitched like at the top of the rotation starter. If Taiwan Walker continues to pitch, all you were really asking out of a guy like that is be league average, you know, be what what Matt's was where Matt's would be a little below league average, league average, but he could give you top of the rotation performances. And you expect him eventually to morph into a three into a top-of-the-rotation almost type, never happened. Uh, he never really replicated how good he was in 15 and 16. 15 when he came up, and then 16 before he got hurt. Walker is a guy that, until Carrasco and Syndergaard come back, it's almost imperative for him to continue along this trajectory because Peterson has been inconsistent, and I'm still not sold on him. I told you that in spring training. Lucchese has been really bad. And I think a lot of that has to do with uh, inconsistent work. And Yamamoto, although he was serviceable in the doubleheader the other night, uh, as you get to see him a little bit more, he doesn't have the repertoire. He's going to rely on a lot of location, change of of pace. He doesn't throw hard. And in this day and age, maybe that'll be an advantage for him. But guys who don't throw hard tend to be really easy for today's hitters. It's almost like they're getting a break after seeing 95, 96, 97, 98. I mean, these days you throw 93, 94, you're a soft tosser. So, you know, it's it's a surprise when you see that. But the starting pitching has been good, and you have Carrasco and Syndergaard. They're there in the next 30 days, and you have another week where, you know, you can put the Grom in the DL if you need to. You have a couple of days off. You could skip some guys in the rotation. So the, the, the COVID uh, cancellations, the rainouts, it will lead to a lot of doubleheaders later in the year. But it's actually happened at a good time where the Mets were trying to figure out the rotation. And it's a lot easier to navigate those doubleheaders when you have a Carrasco and Syndergaard as options. And Yamamoto, Lucchese, those kind of guys. Opener, which, uh, you know, I'm warming up a little bit too. I'll tell you that in a minute. I'm still not crazy about the concept. And I don't think that that's where you want to go long term. But I could see how you could piece together uh, difficult situations, especially if you have the right guys. So the starting pitching is so positive right now. But when it comes to the pitching in general and the positivity about the pitching, the bullpen is what we've been talking about for so long. And that's where this team is really first able to navigate this difficult time because, you know, the bullpen's able to go seven, it went, what were they go, almost eight innings on Saturday and navigated eight innings at that point. But um, you really are able to now see and come to fruition the vision that the Mets had. With no Lugo, right now you have uh, you know, Diaz, and I know everybody gets crazy about him, and he's going to be sweaty, he's going to make you nervous. That's who he is. You have to keep an eye on him. I mean, that's where it comes to Louis Rojas. you got to keep an eye on him and know, maybe like last Sunday in Philadelphia, when he doesn't have it and his pitch count's getting up, you got to know when to yank him. Um, Trevor May has been outstanding in the eighth inning. Uh, uh, Loop has been good against lefties and righties and, and has been tremendous. There's your, your situational guy. Could come in the sixth, could come in the seventh. And um, Castro has been the real surprise, the guy that, you know, right now needed to step up when Lugo was around. Castro, and specifically guys like Familia and Barnes, and I will tell you, forget Castro for a minute because he had potential and talent, and I expected him recently to at least contribute in the early innings. I didn't think you'd want to put him in an eighth inning situation. I looked at Castro as, in terms of leverage, the sixth inning. But the guy, and I don't know if that being called on in a big spot with Bryce Harper up is going to be that moment for Familia. But he was getting better as the, as the you know as spring training came to an end and the season started. And last night, and he was pushed by Louis Rojas, probably pushed more than anybody would like. He probably went two batters too long, and you were waiting for him to lose it, but he didn't. And 
when you look, if you go to Baseball Savant or pretty much any site that you use for advanced metrics, if you even go all the way back to 2015, whether it be the velocity, the contact rate, the the mix of pitches, it Familia's never really changed. It's not like he went from throwing 95, 96 uh, to 88, 89, like Dylan Batances. He lost command of his pitches, and he was constantly falling behind, and he was predictable. He couldn't locate anything, and, and that sinker, which is what he throws. I mean, that's, that's his game. He's going to throw all these sinkers. When that's not on, and he can't command that, and he's got to come in with his four-seam fastball, I mean, they're just going to sit on that, and I don't care if it's 96, 97. It's straight. They're going to clonk him. Now that he's commanding his pitches, uh, that that sinker slider is deadly. I mean, I thought I was looking at Familia from 2015, 2016, 2017. And this is a guy that I told you when, when they had traded him to Oakland. And you got to be careful against left-handed batters. I think you really have to think about that because that's where he'll struggle a little bit. So I, would be, I wouldn't bring him up. Uh, with, you know, Freddie Freeman and, and big hitters like that, unless you absolutely have to. But if he is back to being anywhere near the kind of pitcher that you you saw in 15, 16, 17, heck, even a certain, to a certain degree right before they traded him in 2018, wow, with Lugo coming back, do you realize how lengthy this bullpen has become and how dangerous this bullpen is now? The thing that undid them in 2019, if they like, they have 62 Mets level bullpens the last two or three years. All they need to do is get average or pretty bad bullpens, and they probably make the playoffs in 2019. But if they have an elite bullpen, a top five in baseball bullpen, dare we dream that this continues? And even the guys that are subbing in, Jacob Barnes, who I've dumped on all off season, is becoming like their new. Sandy Alderson 2.0 with Trevor uh, with Jeremy Hefner. Uh, Jacob Barnes is like their their reclamation project. Uh, Reed Foley, who they acquired the match trade, has looked downright nasty. Uh, Tommy Hunter comes in and pitches two innings back to back and seems to really be into the opener thing. I mean, a guy who's been uh, a closer in the past, so a scrappy pickup. Drew Smith is back and hopefully healthy. He's always had a lot of potential. They got him from the Rays for Lucas Dude. He's been that one arm. That you say, you know, can the Mets develop a, a reliever in this system? Maybe Drew Smith becomes that first guy. So you really, you have to be bullish on this team. You know, other than Tarpley, every pitcher they've come in with, you know, Gazelman's pitching better and giving you the kind of uh, length that you need. Uh, maybe it's Jeremy Hefner. Uh, maybe it's some good luck because of health and what have you. But this is a real reason to be bullish about this team. Now, DeGrom going down. Puts much more strain on the bullpen if they can't get, you know, the kind of top of the rotation starter that gives you seven innings consistently. That those days where you could really rest the bullpen, those go away. God forbid you have to do more openers. I think it becomes a little uh, dicey. I mean, look, you want to count outs and do the opener. I, I get to a certain degree. I still think the traditional getting a starting pitcher, warming him up, bringing him in to start the game. You know, from a preparation standpoint, I think there's a lot of mental components to that. Can Lucchese and Yamamoto adjust? To the opposite, you know, I guess we'll see. So far, they've been okay in those roles. Nothing worse or better than maybe what they would have given you as a starter. The second reason to be bullish about this team and why I think the glass is half full. The Bench Mob, that's their new nickname. And I'm so happy, by the way, that even Gary Cohen and Keith Hernandez are getting the VR, Kevin Pillar name screwed up. Because when the first time I did it this offseason, when I said VR, PR, I said, oh, geez, that's a blunder. That's an embarrassing blunder. But it's confusing. When you got them both in the lineup, VR, especially when they're back-to-back, VR, PR, no, VR, Kevin Pillar. So from now on, the way I handle it, VR, Kevin Pillar. So I put his name first, and that helps out a little bit. But when you have the injuries, and the Mets have not had good health, J.D. Davis, Luis Guillerme, Brandon Nimmo again on the shelf, especially J.D. and Nimmo, Big offensive parts of this team. A team that was struggling offensively with them in the lineup. Uh, The drop-off with Kevin Pillar, with Jonathan Villar, it's there, but it's not that bad. Your bench gets weakened, and that's why a Patrick Mizeka has to come in and and get the game-winning hit. But that's one of the components they've been missing. You're not relying on the -the over-the-hill Carlos Gomez. You're not relying on 
uh, going out and trying to find a Joe Panic late in the year. And he was pretty good, but you know, at the end of the year, you're, you shouldn't have to be scouring for those guys because you don't know what you're going to get over someone else's uh, uh, scrap heap. Usually the reason they're on the waiver wire in August, nobody wants them and they're not playing well. Uh, Aaron Altair, whatever, uh, you know, uh, Rajay Davis. These were guys that were 4A guys, even though they may have been contributors at one point in their career, when they came to the Mets and by that point in their careers, they were 4A guys. You want the guys like that to be the exception, not the rule. And that, to me, is the ability to survive those thunderbolts, those smaller thunderbolts, those obliques on Guillerme. And when J.D. goes down with his getting hit after getting hit by a pitch, then, you know, the same thing with uh, Nemo's injury. Hopefully they're not too long. They, you know, they're kind of like weird injuries. That, to me, is the other big positive. The pitching and the bench mob. Now, the negatives. And this is where I still feel yucky. And I worry a little bit that what we see here is, they, by, by advanced metrics, they are a losing team. By run differential, they are a losing team. And the reason they're a losing team is that the offense continues to not execute and not give you a good feel. They're not even not clicking. They're, they're not executing consistently. I mean, the two out of the last five games they've won, two of them, today... And then the, the the getaway game in St. Louis. These are games that should have been blowouts. Today should have been a blowout. One more hit with the bases loaded. This game's not even a contest. It's not. I don't even know if Diaz gets into it. Uh, Thursday in St. Louis was absurd with the amount of walks. I mean, they, they basically kept the Cardinals in the game. Another game that Diaz came into. That's the concerning thing. Because that's where this team if they don't straighten out and execute better on offense, that's where you're going to start to see the bullpen get strained. The bullpen can't be perfect the whole year. The starters are going to have games where you're going to need to bail them out a little bit. I mean, DeGrom, even, you know, when he's, and let's, let's think positive, positively, you know, he's go, he's going to be back and he's going to pitch this year. and He's going to pitch like DeGrom, but he's not going to pitch to a 0.6 ERA all year. It just, it just doesn't make any, any sense. So, the execution with runners on, not just hitting with runners in scoring position, making productive outs, moving runners along, uh, it's still not there. And that's the most concerning thing because now you're about 30 games in. I'm not ready to say this is who they are, but in the next couple of weeks, if it doesn't improve as we get to Memorial Day, it's going to start to settle in as this is a trend that may last a little longer than just a small sample size. Maybe something they're going to have to work through and be a theme similar to how the bullpen was a, a theme throughout 2019 for the rest of this year. Maybe we have to manage expectations also, I'm thinking about on this offense. Because just because I think it's a five uh, run per game type of offense, and you think, doesn't mean it is. I think they need to get Lindor and McNeil on track because I'm not sure that, you know, I never thought McCann was going to hit like he hit last year in, in, in an all star level. A year ago, I expect him to be a league average hitter, better, you know, in the defense and the intangibles. And you even heard Tommy Hunter talk about the intangibles that McCann brings about, you know, how he's kind of working with him on his uh, location and, and where he sets up and everything. All the things that McCann came over here from an intelligence about managing a staff and, and working the, the craft of actually the catch and throw components of being a catcher, that's all I care about. Do I want him to hit like a pitcher like he's hitting now? No. But I'm going to be more tolerant of his offense, more so than anybody else. Dom Smith, that's the one guy I'm going to tell you that is really, you know, McNeil and Lindor have killed the Mets offense. Those guys have killed the Mets offense, and you 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 would expect them to get on track because there's a, a long history with Lindor and a you know, decent enough history of offense with McNeil. Dom has had 50 good games. I mean, this is a guy that everybody couldn't take anymore uh, just a couple of years ago, going into spring training. He was a backup most of 2019. Right before he got hurt in the summer of 2019, he wasn't hitting. You know, he had a nice stretch, I think, in like June leading it. But then July, he wasn't hitting. I think like a buck 80 or something. Go back and look at the splits on baseball reference. So he, has, he hasn't done this for a full season. So what we saw last year was was cool. Promising, top draft pick, first round pick, you expect it. But now you're not getting it. And I'll tell you what, 
him not hitting and then batting in the middle of the lineup is a killer. Now, he got a nice hit today. I'm not, you know, ready to throw him off the island here. But he's the guy that, look, if McNeil and Lindor get on track, you could survive a less stellar Dom and whatever McCann's shortcomings offensively are. If those guys, especially, let's say Lindor gets back to normal, but he's not elite, top five, top ten Lindor. He's, you know, really good Lindor with really good defense. And McNeil doesn't hit, then you got to get something out of Dom. It's just that simple. Or else this offense is going to continue to struggle. I'm not expecting everybody to have a career year. But I'm I'm worried a little bit about what I see because I just have ne- I mean, McNeil doesn't look good. He continues. Uh, I worry that he's been too... I, I said this in the offseason at times when I saw videos of him hitting balls over the wall. I wonder if he's, he's, his swing is too long and he's got the same syndrome that at one point got Lenny Dykstra in trouble before he went, which got him traded from the Mets is where he was a little home run happy. Um, you know, Dom, I don't know if it's the pressure to repeat a really good performance. Is it because he's not playing, you know, first base? I, I don't know quite what the deal is with Dom. He played the outfield last year. Uh, it's really interesting to me that we're now 30 games in and we're still seeing a lot of these sleepy trends offensively. They've been better. Look, since we had the, the show last Friday about the offense, they went into Philadelphia, and I'm looking at the numbers right here. They're probably averaging about five runs a game since that point. So they um, they went to Philadelphia. Well, they lost 2-1, to one, but let's say since Saturday, since the Saturday game in Philly, they scored five runs. They scored eight on Sunday. That's 13. They scored another five in St. Louis. That's 18. 19 in the first game of the doubleheader. 26 with the seven runs. 30, 35, 39. 39 in eight games, 8, 16, 24, 30. Eh, yeah, about, you know, a little, about five runs a game since Saturday, since that awful loss in Philadelphia, the 2-1 loss where, you know, basically Stroman pitched great and, and the Mets, you know, gave him a couple of unearned runs. So that, to me, is the first reason where the glass is half empty. Uh, defensively, you go to the defense. They're one of the bottom three teams in the league. JD's had a tough start. Lindor hasn't been great. Uh, we know Nimmo was always going to be somewhat of a liability in center field. Uh, you know, Dom, if he doesn't hit, it makes you totally rethink the outfield where you're better off putting Nimmo on left and putting Kevin Pillar in center for defense. And and then you might even think about as you get into the, the middle of the season, can you go out there and trade for center fielder? Again, we're far away from that. But the other thing I'm going to give you, which is I'm not going to blame on the players, which is something I'm looking at, and I tweeted about it, and it's very pronounced this week, especially in St. Louis, was the shifting. Now, Lindor went on record in spring training that he doesn't like the shift. And I understand that they have the metrics, and they're going to do all the analysis, and, and, I'm, and who the hell am I to question it just by looking at my eyes? But have you, if you've been watching the games like I have, does it always seem like the Mets are out of position for a ground ball? Does it always seem like Lindor's got to do weird go to his right, circuitous routes on ground balls because he's all, he's all the way shifted behind second base. You know, today, uh, I think it was Voight that hit a ball into the gap between uh, when Pilar and Conforto collided. And I kind of felt him like, where were they positioned with a lefty? A guy who pulls. It, it, I don't know. I don't know if it's the positioning, is it the players? But the shifting to me, especially in St. Louis, seemed like any time the Mets shifted, the Cardinals hit the ball where a second baseman should have been, where a third baseman should have been, where a shortstop should have been. And I, I personally believe the fight on Friday was about that you know, miscommunication on a ground ball between Lindor and McNeil. And I blame the shift on this stuff. I think the, the metrics and the numbers of where hitters hit is a great tool, and there's a, a, a valid reason to shift. But pitchers don't pitch to the defense. I've seen plenty of pitchers. They're going away, 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 and to a lefty. And the infield's all the way shifted to pull. I'm like, well, if he's pitching away as a lefty, and maybe this is more. This is certainly more on the hitter, I just poke it the other way and I get a hit. Situational hitting, which the Mets don't do in a reason. You know, nobody does it. I mean, it's a big thing that's been talked about maybe why offense is struggling. So the defense is another thing to be a little bearish on the Mets, but 
I also wonder if they're creating their own problems with the shift. They're never going to be a top defensive team, but I think the up the middle defense so much better with Lindor and McNeil. McCann behind the plate so much better. If that is where, and they'll survive the the Nimmo in center field, and then they'll bring Almora or Pilar in for defense. If J.D. Davis, even Pete has been good at first. If J.D. Davis is your biggest worry defensively, and hopefully when he gets healthy from the oblique, that could take a while. Guillaume comes in as your defensive stalwart at third. VR hasn't been bad at third base himself. That's not that's a better place to be in than some of the places they've been. This is a team that went to the World Series with Wilmer Flores as a shortstop. Wilmer Flores is not a shortstop. Estrubal Cabrera was a shortstop in 2016. Love Estrubal Cabrera. Good bat. Probably wasn't a shortstop anymore. He's a corner guy now. Barely a second baseman anymore when he was at the Mets. So... I am glass half full in the Mets. I'm still, you know, I got this little bad feeling these wins are good, but the offense and the execution and the fact that they didn't really tack on really starting to bother me. I'm not ready to say this is who they are, but a team always has one glaring negative in a season that becomes a theme and a trend. It's been the bullpen for so many years with the Mets. I hope it's not situational hitting. I'm not going to say hitting and running in scoring position because that's part of it. It's the situational hitting. It's knowing when to shorten up. It's knowing when to make contact. Having the ability to make contact. Those are the things that I wonder. And that's a big reason why the Mets can't get a fly ball with a run on third. I mean, you get a fly ball, a couple fly balls, you know, that's not a 4-2 game. That's a 5-2-6-2-7-2 game easily. Easily. I mean, the Mets are drawing walks at a rapid pace. Uh, you know, they're working starting pitchers. They're doing what they need to do, so... Again, we it's a little bit early still, and uh, we'll see where we are in a couple of weeks when Memorial Day rolls around. But that's why I think the Mets, the glass is half full. All right, let's take a quick break. We're not done yet. Matt Harvey's coming to town. He'll be pitching at City Field for the Business Person Special, a noon start on Wednesday. What are my thoughts with Harvey now coming back to face his former team at the scene of the crime? Game 5 of the 2015 World Series. I'll talk about that and more right after this. Matt Harvey was a polarizing force during his time with the Mets. Jared Diamond, national baseball writer for the Wall Street Journal, shared his experience covering the Dark Knight on the Talking Mets podcast. Well, covering him in 2013 was absolutely remarkable. It was so incredible. And I think like like anyone else who saw him that year, you thought you were looking at, you know, the next Nolan Ryan, a guy that was going to be around for a long time. And be a perennial all-star and, and establish himself as one of the best pitchers in baseball, the best pitchers of his generation. So it just was, it makes me sad looking back what happened to him. And now that doesn't mean that it wasn't his fault. He did a lot of things wrong. He made a lot of mistakes. And I have no doubt that he would acknowledge that uh, now looking back. Uh, this was a tragedy that was certainly self-imposed in many ways with of bad decision-making uh, by Matt Harvey, but he also had a lot of pressure put on him by the media, by fans. Uh, it's just sort of a sad story, and it's a shame that he will never be the player he could have been, the player perhaps he had a chance to be, and it's just another one of those baseball stories, those sort of what-could-have-been stories. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. All right, we're back, and so Matt Harvey, ironically, is a weird season where we've seen so much to date. A weird season. Uh, <laughs> Matt Harvey's coming back, and he's going to be pitching against the Mets uh, uh, this year. If you want to think about how weird this season has been, uh, I saw a tweet the other day about all the things that have happened to the Mets. There was a COVID delay to start the season. They've had seven rainouts, a snow out, a suspended game. The offense, which we just talked about, the DeGrom nonsense now with the injury and about how they wasted all these great performances. You had the fight, which we really didn't even talk much about it, the Dom versus Alvarado fight. It was, it was so silly. It didn't even really uh, uh, matter. They lost the game on a drop third strike. The Diesel Donnie thing was weird. You know, the Hoskins thing last Sunday night with the near homer that wasn't. The, you know, the kidding coaches get fired. Then you have the rat versus raccoon fight and the debate. It, it's been crazy. I mean, think about all what I rattled off, and it's only you know May 9th. It's Mother's Day. 
it's crazy. And now the Dark Knights. So you want to add something? You want to know how cruel the baseball gods are? You and I are here next Sunday. And I, and I think by the time the next Sunday show comes around, uh, you know, the Mets start a very critical first real test road trip going to Tampa, going to Atlanta, uh, a couple of places. Not going to be an easy road trip. Um, Matt Harvey comes and he shuts the Mets down for six innings on two hits and gets the win. I mean, could you see that? Because I can. Look, here's what I'm going to say about Matt Harvey. Matt Harvey, if you had predicted a pitcher on the Mets being elite, being all-time great, being compared to guys like Seaver, you would never think Jacob deGrom was the name. It was supposed to be Matt Harvey. He was the Dark Knight. He was invincible. He made that great debut in Arizona. And then the following year, he's starting in the All-Star game. And all you know, he's on the cover of the Body Magazine, ESPN, and... He's, you know, he's going around during the All-Star game on the late show, you know, talking to fans uh, in the streets of, of New York City. And you could make the argument that it was too much too fast. And there was a lot of manufactured, you know, this is the Mets' Derek Jeter. And, you know, he was – the Mets fans, I never, I think, never really embraced him because he wasn't blue-collar like them. He was page six. He wanted to be more A-Rod. He wanted to be more Jeter. And what Mets fans like, they like superstars – but they like lunch pail superstars. David Wright was a lunch pail superstar. Pete Alonso is a lunch pail superstar. Uh, Lindor, we'll see, but I think he's more of a working superstar. They don't like, I'll use the term, pretty boy superstars. They don't like that. Mets fans feel like it's not, you know, they want to be more the the lunch pail working class, get the job done. They want you to to perform like those guys. But they don't really like you to be those guys. So I always felt there was an arm's length relationship, especially because the Wilpons own the team. And the feeling was this guy's going to get too expensive. He's going to wind up leaving anyway. I can't emotionally invest in him. But, you know, he gets hurt. He has Tommy John surgery like so many pitchers. Comes back in 2015. And I'll give him credit. Now, Steven Strasburg, just a few years earlier, listened to his agent, shut it down. And the Nats blew a golden opportunity to, to win a playoff series without him. You know, a, a mind-boggling. I think the Nats that year didn't think they were going to be a postseason team. They, they got a little ahead of schedule. You know, everybody's got their schedule. Sometimes baseball and baseball gods don't listen to your schedule, reality in front of you. And they didn't manage his innings. And sure enough, he shut it down. And no postseason. And the Nats get knocked out in the postseason. And look, if they don't win a championship in 2019, it might have been the go down as the ultimate what-if. This team that was built to win had an opportunity early in the process and their best pitcher, you know, nowhere to be found. And he got hurt anyway because he's got bad mechanics. So, you know, the, the car isn't built well. doesn't matter if you, you limit the mileage. It'll break down. Old story. We've talked about here, that here a billion times. But he chose the team over himself. And he wasn't great all the time in the postseason. He wasn't great against the Dodgers. He pitched that big game against the Cubs. He was bad in game one against the, the, the Royals. And he pitched that classic Game 5, which uh, I'll never criticize. There's a lot of things I'd criticize Terry Collins for in uh, that World Series, specifically Game 4, and how one manager went to his closer for two innings, the other guy didn't. And guess who won? The manager who did. But bringing Matt Harvey out in the ninth inning, uh, that's not one of them. I mean, he was dominating the Royals. If Familia had come in and, and, and after being used heavily, had blown the game, it would have it would have been so much worse, and maybe the only thing you can question is his pitch selection uh, in that inning. But you know that's all water under the bridge. You know Lorenzo Cain throw him in a breaking pitch. I think it was probably something he should have just gone after him with a two run lead. So he was the man. He was a guy that he was becoming blue collar. Like that was a blue collar event. Like here's a guy that was this page six pretty boy gets hurt, comes back. And, and in a lot of ways was putting his moment where the Mets fans were falling in love with him. They were finally falling in love with him. And then he goes and has thoracic outlet surgery. And that's what's done him in. Because you could talk about the off-the-field stuff. And I think Matt has had, without getting into detail, some other off-the-field stuff that there's been rumblings about, you know, not showing up to practice and having security have to go find you. You know, that tells you that this guy probably had other problems. You know, you guys are smart. You know, the Mets have had history with guys having problems. 
hopefully he's better. It sounds like he's better by the way he's pitching. But most importantly, forget the off-the-field stuff, which I think was more media fodder. He could not adapt, or it's taken him a long time to adapt to mortal stuff. This current version of Matt Harvey, there are no expectations of the Dark Knight. There was no expectation of the Dark Knight in Cincinnati, Kansas City, Oakland, any of the other places he's gone since he was with the Mets. Right now, can he say to himself, I need to be the best version of my current Matt Harvey that I can be? And that's really a four or five starter, league average, slightly above league average, get the team through five or six innings. You're not going to necessarily strike out more than a batter per nine innings. You're going to require more contact, more location. I did not think he could adapt to that. I thought he was a bully pitcher, a pitcher that once, you know, he got his his hair cut, for lack of a better word, you know, the old Samson story, the old myth, that he couldn't, he couldn't produce anymore. And I was right for a long time. Now the worm is turning a little bit, and he's coming to City Field on Wednesday afternoon for this business person special getaway day. Hopefully the Mets are going for a sweep. They're facing John Means coming off a no-hitter the night before, and then they have a tough road trip that they're going out on. Uh, where they got to go to uh, Atlanta, they got to go to Miami, they're going to be in Tampa. Not easy places to play and to win. So, you know, to me, uh, finishing off this homestand and facing Matt Harvey is kind of the, you know, the coup de grace there. Maybe they're going for a perfect homestand. But I have no animosity. And even if Matt Harvey shuts them down, that'll be annoying. And we'll roll our eyes. We'll say, of course, with the way this offense is performing, of course. But... I don't dislike him. I feel for him. Um, he, even though he was a, 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 like Haley's Comet, he came and he went, and he'll go in Mets history as that, you know, what if. You heard Jared Diamond coming in on the, one of the old segments on that ad that I ran, one of the old segments we did on the Talking Mets podcast to the Dark Knight theme in the background. But um, I don't feel any animosity, any anger. I don't want to see them knock his block off. There's not that anger like... Sometimes players leave and are disappointments here and you really don't like them. He doesn't, well, at least for me, he doesn't fall into that. And I hope not for you. I don't think he deserves to be booed. I think he deserves to be applauded for what he did here. Because 2015 will, you know, will go down as a great what if. Just like his career will go down as a great what if. But it was a really cool time to be a Mets fan. It'll always be a special season in our hearts. And Matt Harvey's you know, run of, you know, what, two, two and a half years of dominance, maybe three, you want to add a little bit of 2012, really just 13 and 15, really, when you think about it, which even 13 wasn't a full season. Uh, it's going to go down as uh, a great moment in Mets history, and we'll remember it, and, and maybe 20 years from now, we'll still be debating the great what if and what he could have been, and what you see out of Jacob deGrom is what Matt Harvey was supposed to be. So you can never predict this stuff. You know, if you met if, if it was another guy, you would have even predicted maybe Noah Syndergaard before DeGrom. The guy without the comic book moniker, without the fanfares, the guy that's the best of all. Think about that. Who would have thought it? All right, we're going to take a quick break and wrap up. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. You never know who's going to stop by the Talking Mets podcast. Back on June 16, 2019, Hall of Famer, Mike Piazza talked about the transition from Los Angeles to New York. It was a huge environmental shift. I mean, I'm living on the beach in Los Angeles and, uh, you know, walking around in flip-flops and sandals and then getting in a car and driving to Dodger Stadium and the fans love me and, and the, the girls love me and everyone's screaming your name. And then next thing you know, you're in the, you know, the cauldron that is New York because uh, it's just, it was a different environment and, and it was more laid back in Los Angeles um, he, until my contract dispute I never got booed in LA so when I was getting booed here it was like a new experience and I really didn't know how to handle it and then I eventually came around and I figured it out that New York fans are passionate they have a blue collar attitude they just they love their team and I mentioned that in my Hall of Fame speech I think it made me better listen to this and more on the Talking Mets podcast at www.talkingmetspodcast.com all 
night, final thoughts. Wanted to give you a couple of things to look out for. I am going to be a guest. Uh, I think it's tomorrow, Monday, depending on when you're listening to it. So Monday, I don't know when you guys are picking this up, probably picking this up on a Monday, but uh, on the Subway to Shea podcast, so I'll, I'll tweet out at Mike Silva Media when I'm going to be on that podcast, and I uh, should have a good time. Anthony Rivera, the host of that podcast, so check that out. I also want to thank, uh, I got we got a ton of following, it seems like, in the United Kingdom. I don't know how the Mets made this connection to the UK, but you guys are, are beautiful Mets fans over in the United Kingdom. Sean, uh, Go, uh, and I hope you say, I say your name correctly, Sean, Sean uh, Ghostage um, from the United Kingdom. He, made, he went to his first Mets game in 1989. Uh, I guess he has family in Long Island City. And he got hooked, and, and now he's been going to games uh, the last oh, 30 years or so. So, uh, you know, thanks for listening, Sean. A big fan of you and the U.K. And anytime we could grow baseball across the pond and in other parts of the world, and you're a Mets fan, that's a beautiful thing. I also And I also believe um, Adam Henley, and I may have given him a, a shout-out, but he tweeted at me earlier today that he picked up MVP Machine. I've been referencing that a lot over the last few months because I think there's a lot of things that are in that book that talk about the genesis of where the game is at today and really in a loose way why Chili Davis wasn't a fit as Mets hitting coach but Adam Henley uh, at Henley Adam on Twitter uh, picked up the MVP machine big fan of the show over in the UK so thank you Adam for uh, uh, listening and and listen spread the word I know there's other thank yous that I have to uh, put out there but um, you know, we'll continue to try to find opportunities to get more fans on the show, just like we did uh, with our friend Richard Housick, met a GN Mets fan last week, and so on and so forth. So, anyway, big road trip coming up. Mets are going to be going. You know, you got the games with the Orioles, you know, the Matt Harvey byline, which uh, will come and go. And then one of the first test road trips, a real road trip. It seems like the Mets went on the road briefly and come back. And they had a nice road trip in St. Louis and Philadelphia. That's not an easy one either especially in the midst of all the craziness going on. They're not hitting, the coaches being fired, what have you. But Tampa, tough American League team. Atlanta, a team that many think is the best in the division, has been struggling. Uh, and then they go to Miami, and Miami is always going to be, uh, they have good good bullpen. They've always had really good pitching, even when they were bad. You know, that's a place where, you know, normal times nobody shows up and COVID protocol. I, don't, I think I think Florida's pretty much open, so they may have more fans there. It might be, it might be more like City Field in Miami than City Field will be at any point this year. Who knows? New York City's supposed to be open 100% in a couple of months. We'll see. I'll, I'll see it when I believe it on that whole front. And that's another story for another day. All right, I want to thank everyone for tuning in. Of course, you could check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet, at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, just like some of the guys we just mentioned, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy your week. We'll be back with another show next week. Till then, take care, everybody.
Nicholson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.